Good morning, church. My name is Stephanie Rudman, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And we'll be reading from the book of Ruth, chapter 2, this morning. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men, who, had, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young women is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me clean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And then you are, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of, her, of your husband has been faithfully told to me and how you left your father and mother, your native land, and came to the people that you did not know before. The Lord repay for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her the roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her the food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, 
May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in an another field you may be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with that with her mother-in-law. This is God's word for us today. Well, church, would you join me in prayer before we look to God's word? Father, we, we want to quiet our hearts now and, and simply ask that you would speak to us through me, yes, but more than that, through the passage that has just been read, through the passage that's just been read here now and the passage that God's people have read and celebrated and cherished and clung to for many, many years, God. We pray that this passage would have your intended effect in our lives, in our hearts now, as we search for your redemption in the brokenness of our life in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in many ways, uh, the, it seems like the church today is entering a season of famine. These are hard times. Uh, for years leading up, uh, many churches had already lost sight of some of the most foundational basics of a healthy spiritual church, like the preaching of Scripture, calling people to repent and believe in the gospel, committing to follow Jesus together as members of local churches. And then, of course, a couple years ago, we went through a pandemic, uh, and we all kind of had to reassess our commitment to even just the simple thing of gathering on Sunday mornings. Uh, many churches have been sort of reshuffled in these last few years in the midst of this sort of turmoil. Um, online engagement between Christians has grown hostile and divisive on a number of very important issues. Every few weeks, it seems, there's another pastor who is stepping down for one reason or another, or a prominent Christian who's now deconstructing and no longer identifies as a Christian. Uh, and on top of that, in many cases, our own spiritual health and life can be very challenging as we experience sort of disproportionate amounts of, of loss and and depression and any number of challenges ourselves. There are many, many reasons uh, to give up on this whole idea of God's people, to give up on the church. Uh, more than that, it may even seem like there are many reasons to stop searching for redemption, as if God has just decided for whatever reason at this point in time to deal bitterly with us, to deal harshly. Well, last week we learned that Naomi and Ruth found themselves in a very similar situation. First, Naomi and her family left God's people and God's land because of a famine. Uh, they went to sojourn in a place called Moab, where Naomi's sons both met uh, Moabite wives and, and married Moabite wives. Ruth is one of those wives. But then, of course, tragedy struck. We read right away in this book, all the men in this family died which left these women in dire straits. And now, 
Ruth and Naomi have just made their way back to God and his people in search of redemption. And we're meant to wonder here, what's next for them? And even last week, as we could see God orchestrating a few details in an encouraging and positive direction, the point of last week's passage was that Naomi could not see it. But in our passage today, we really start to see the sweetness of God's redemptive plan take shape. And by the end of our passage today, so does Naomi. But yet again, in this book, it's so cool how this book's written, but as the reader, we get to see this first. Right away in verse 1, we get a glimpse in to what's going to come, and then we get to basically watch as the characters of this story come to see and discover it themselves. And with that in mind, I think we're meant to approach this passage basically with this question, wondering, how does God tend to redeem his people? And therefore, how should we live while we are in search of his redemption? This is a timely question for us to find answers to, especially as we're faced with this season of famine, it seems. It's not easy to know what's the best way to respond to all of this bitterness and sorrow and trial that we see within the family of God, even particularly right now. How should we live as we search for God's redemption in the church today. Right away in verse 1, I want you to notice first that the author kind of really tips his hand to us, and he brings us right into the conclusion of the chapter. He says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, if you remember last week, uh, Naomi decided she wanted to change her name from, from what meant sweet to bitter. And we talked about the significance of names in Israel. They're meant to be a reflection of a person's inner life and character. And in this case, the name Boaz means in him is strength. So the author is introducing us to this man named in him is, is strength. And so this is a pretty promising introduction for us. We learn right away that Boaz is a relative of the families of the clan of Elimelech and, and therefore Naomi as well. So I want to just consider as well before we dive in, what does that mean? Because it's, it's going to become especially important in the weeks ahead to understand this. Uh, one, one scholar points out that these clans that the author is referring to were basically a unit that is larger than the extended family, but smaller than the tribe. So within Israel, these are basically sort of think of them as sub-tribes made up of these families who've kind of linked their uh, lineages together and in sort of an alliance, if you will. So with all that said, what I want you to see here in the very beginning before we even dive in is that we're being given an insight here. We're being given a vantage point in verse 1 that none of the characters quite see or understand quite yet. Uh, we are introduced to Boaz right away before he crosses paths with Ruth and therefore connects with Naomi. And the author is already telling us he's a worthy man. The author is already telling us he is of the clan of Elimelech. There's an alliance here between these families. Keep your eyes on that. This is very promising. This is the kind of guy we're meant to see that God could use to reverse this whole tragedy and trial. So let's then, now, Bible's open, if you would, with me and Ruth 2, jump into the text, and I want to see the author beginning to show us how God is going to redeem Naomi and Ruth. And again, we're meant to watch and see how it happens and, and sort of learn something from it. 
The first thing I want to point out in this story is Ruth's faith. Uh, Right away, she says to Naomi in verse 2, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, Naomi, remember, didn't even want her to come. Ruth can't wait to get out there and glean. Naomi didn't think it would go well for her if she came. Ruth is convinced she's finding favor with someone. This is a show of faith. Confidence in the working of Naomi's God. She still cannot see how this will all work out, any more so than Naomi can, but she's trusting that it will. She says, let me go. Let me go. I also want to point out briefly God's providence at work in this passage. We have one of these otherwise inexplicable conveniences. Uh, As soon as Naomi says, go, my daughter, right away, reread that Ruth happens to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Otherwise inexplicable convenience. This is the man we were just introduced to by the author. And again, we can see God doing something here based on what the authors told us, but Ruth is utterly clueless of that, and so is Naomi at this point in the story. And from this point on is when we sit back and we watch the dots connect for them. And the focus of this story, what we see repeated over and over, is the worthiness of both Boaz and Ruth. The story is told in such a way that really puts the spotlight on just how honorable and just how godly both of these people truly were. Uh, Before Ruth even meets Boaz, we read this description of him addressing his servants. You see this? He says, Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. And here the author is basically confirming for us what he's just told us, namely that Boaz is a worthy man. First, he's the kind of man who acknowledges the Lord in all that he does, even his daily work with his employees. And it's clearly not just a show because his servants respond in kind and they must respect him enough and want him to be blessed here. We're supposed to see a glimpse into his worthiness before he even meets Ruth. Then Boaz notices Ruth. And they have this interesting exchange between Boaz and this male servant, one of the young men who's probably a manager of his reapers. uh, Boaz asks about Ruth to this manager, and he specifically asks, whose young woman is this? Which may mean, does she work for someone else? Or Or it also may mean, is she married? Probably both. And the servant tells Boaz Ruth's story, apparently, that she is a young Moabite woman. So she's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner, which meant she would not be entitled to work or earn a wage in any sort of sense. Um, He told her that she came from Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is an Israelite. And uh, apparently Ruth asked this manager to glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now, without getting into the particulars of how harvesting was done, this is basically stated in exactly the way it's supposed to be done, this kind of harvesting, according to the Old Testament law. So we see, again, a kind of worthiness in Ruth here. She's not being presumptuous. She's not asking for some uh, extra special favor. She's actually asking in some ways to kind of pick up the leftovers along the way. And and this manager also mentions that she's been working hard, he says, uh, from early morning until now except for a short rest. So I want you to notice here the way Ruth is described, much like Boaz, she is worthy. She, She is honorable. She is godly. 
Now, in context, it's, it would have been very common for a man like Boaz to deal very harshly with a woman like Ruth for a number of reasons. First, because she is a foreigner, and there's a lot of tension between these sort of, of, of groups in that time. Also, she wouldn't have had any particular rights in the, in the people of Israel like an Israelite would have, but also because she's a widow. I mean, she would, she would have no one to come to her aid and protect her. Sort of a vulnerable woman could have easily been taken advantage of. And the author brings this dynamic to our attention in two places in the passage. First, soon, Boaz is going to have to tell his men not to touch her, which we would assume means that had he not said that, it would have been entirely possible that they would have harmed her in some way. And then toward the end, Naomi actually says, phew, I'm glad you, you landed at his field. Why don't you stay there? And she says, lest in another field you be assaulted. So as a foreign female uh, widow, Going out to the fields would have been a dangerous thing for Ruth to do. And so this raises the question as we watch the orbits of these two people coming closer and closer together, how will Boaz treat Ruth? And the way this is written, really, there's not much dispense to it. It's just kind of like, you know, this is how they say you shouldn't make movies. It's just everything you hope happens just kind of happens, right? And we see he shows her favor. And in fact, he goes above and beyond to show her favor. He says, don't go anywhere else. Keep close to my young women. He sort of brings her in close. Then he says, you'll be safe here. I've charged my men not to touch you. So he's protecting her. And he says, listen, if you're thirsty, then drink whatever they drink, right? So he's going above and beyond to show her kindness. And then when Ruth asks Boaz why he's showing her this favor and being so kind, he says that he has heard that she has been incredibly kind to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is an Israelite. Look with me at verse 11. Boaz answers her. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you first left your father and mother and your native land, and also came to a people that you did not know before. Now, but here next, we see into uh, Boaz's real motivation. Here's really why he is doing what he's doing, uh, and he, he says it here in verse 12. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given, by, to, uh, be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is so significant. So on one hand, Boaz wants the Lord, notice, to repay Ruth for her kindness to Naomi. On the other hand, he's about to do all the things he just mentioned for her. He rewards her. He gives her refuge. This is meant to be a stark contrast to what we read last week about Naomi. Naomi, remember, attributed all her bitterness and her suffering to the Lord, this is very much the opposite. Naomi saw herself as sort of a passive sufferer who God dealt bitterly with. Boaz is not just some passive subject to God's harsh control in his life. He is an active participant in God's redeeming work, even in Ruth's life. He wants God to repay Ruth, so he repays her. He wants God to give her reward, so he rewards her. He wants God to provide her with refuge, so he provides refuge. And then Ruth thanks Boaz for being so kind. Some of us at church have this like inside, like we kind of thank you. And anytime we say thank you, the other person says, no, thank you. Uh, and then the other person says, no, thank you so much for thanking me for that. And that's kind of what's going on here. 
Uh, in verse 13, she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. So she, she found what she was looking for when she went out to that field. And she says, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So even recognizing in humility, I, I don't deserve this. I'm not part of your, uh, your reapers. And at mealtime, the kindness just continues. Uh, and Boaz gives Ruth even more food. She eats until she's satisfied, which is yet again meant to be a contrast to Ruth feeling like she's empty as she arrives to, to Bethlehem at harvest time. The very next day, we see Ruth is eating till she's satisfied. Um, she even brings some home, leftovers to Naomi, uh, and when she, she is, gets up to leave for work, Boaz tells his servants, listen, let her do these various things. Let her do what I'm going to tell you to do. Don't rebuke her. He's given her inside access to the harvest to help her out. So listen, throughout this story, both Boaz and Ruth are outdoing one another in showing honor. And for us, as the reader, all kinds of dots are starting to connect here. We see where this is headed. God is doing something here. And then we come to this final scene. After everything we read last week, even Naomi starts to see God more clearly in light of this new development. Ruth comes home with loads of barley, so apparently her day went pretty well. Naomi asks, well, whose field did you glean in? And wow, right? They kind of must have treated you pretty well. And Ruth says, the man was named Boaz. Now again, as, as a reader, this is not news to us. We knew this in verse 1, but it is news to Naomi at this point in the story. And this really does mark a surprising turning point in the story. It's as if something clicks in Naomi's heart and she starts to see what God is doing here. Even after all of the darkness and her inability to see it last week, in verse 20 she says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So here again, even she now is attributing Boaz's kindness to the kindness of the Lord. As if it is the Lord who has not forsaken, in her words, the living, her and Ruth, or the dead, that is Elimelech and his sons. So first again, such a stark contrast to last week. Last week she said, the Lord, don't call me sweet. Call me bitter, for the Lord has dealt harshly with me. All she could attribute to God was her suffering last week. And now here she is attributing to God favor and, and blessing. But here... Uh, I want to consider also, what does it mean, this will become significant, that because of Boaz's kindness, the Lord has not forsaken the living or the dead? What is that about? What does this have to do with the dead? It's kind of interesting. We think very differently these days about uh, legacy and heritage of a family. Uh, these days, we're all expressive individuals. And the moment we're born into this world, we basically say to our parents, well, like, whatever, you know, like, I'm my own person. You know, you can't define me. But I will hope you'll give me everything you own when you die, right? Right? So that's kind of how we tend to think of inheritance these days. Uh, that is not how it worked back then. Uh, they really saw themselves as part of a generational work of God. Their entire existence was part of this story of God multiplying a people. It's much bigger than just them and their lives and how they want to express themselves. Not to mention, in this day, survival was something of an accomplishment. 
It was not easy, okay? And so the idea of passing on wealth and an inheritance from one generation to the next, I mean, that's a tremendous blessing, and it was really a help to those who would come after you in the life of your family. Now, the point is, all of that, the whole story of Elimelech's line was at stake here. This was not just about God helping a couple women in Israel. This is about God rescuing his family line from extinction so that the entire history and legacy of this family would not be wiped off the face of this earth, which would have been huge in a group of people whose story ties back to God multiplying families from the very beginning. So Naomi even starts to connect these dots. If you look at verse 22, she says, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is where we're introduced first to the idea of of redemption. I want to point out something a little obvious, but this is the name of our church, uh, is redemption. So I want to consider what does it mean to redeem in this way or, or to be a redeemer. Well, see, in this day, to, to redeem someone is to purchase them and or their estate in order to set them free from a status of poverty or servitude. It's basically to buy someone out of a really bad situation, which would have required two things. First, it would have required money. It would have required the resources to do that. And it also would have required the will and the desire to do it. And what becomes clear in the book of Ruth is that there were specific rules in Israel about how a family could be redeemed. And these rules largely were based on this system of clans. What we're going to see, particularly next week, is that there was basically an order of succession within these clans. And the family that was closest to the clan basically had what would be like the first rite of redemption. And so so here's the point. Last week we saw that we, we can't always see or understand how God will redeem us. Uh, this week, right away in verse 1, we get a sneak peek into how he's going to do it. It's through this man, Boaz, and by the end of chapter 2, even Naomi starts to see it. Turns out what Naomi starts to see is this, our claim of, of the passage today, is that God shows favor to his people through the kindness of his people. It is he who repays through the repayment of Boaz. It is he who provides through the provision of Boaz. It is he who protects through the protection of Boaz. Now, Naomi wasn't even excited to go back. She didn't want Ruth to come. She went back empty in her own words. But with this kindness that Boaz has shown to Ruth, it's as if everything changes. And she starts to see the picture more clearly And we get to see, we get to watch her discover how God will redeem her and show favor in her time of need. And the point is this. If we are in search of God's favor, of his redemptive power, this is where we need to look for it. Uh, He does not just give us these things in some sort of nebulous, mysterious way. He shows us favor and kindness through his people. And as Christians, we know the ultimate act of kindness that this very same God has shown to all of us through the ultimate person, really. And that is, namely, his son, Jesus Christ. 
That's where this whole story, he, is where this whole story is headed. We're going to see that because God continued the line of Elimelech, later in the person of Jesus Christ, his very own son will, in a sense, become one of his people. He will descend from heaven to take on human flesh to show us a kind of kindness that this world, frankly, has never seen. A kind of kindness that will eclipse the kindness of Boaz in ways we can't even fathom. He will give God's son incarnate, will give his very own life as a ransom so that we can find the redemption we are searching for. Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were in need, church, of redemption, to say the least. And here's how he continues. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. This is how Paul refers to Jesus Christ. He calls him the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, who has come to redeem and save us. And he continues, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by his grace, uh, whom he poured out on us rather richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Like Ruth, the total and utter outsider among God's people, Christ has come to bring us into his people, to make us heirs with an inheritance, with a future. We were all like Ruth Church, in desperate need of a redeemer like Boaz. And God has shown us favor through the kindness of his son. And yet, like Ruth and Naomi, none of us even still can quite see and be sure how the details of our life will work out in the end. And so with that said, by way of application, I want us to consider how should we live now, today, while we are in search of redemption, while we're waiting for this redemption to come to its final conclusion. How should we live? I'm going to have for us from this passage three calls to action, three uh, calls to, to do and to live in a certain way, and then three reasons from the passage why we should, okay? The first one, the first call to action is this. We should go. <laughs> I'll explain that. And the reason we should go is because God will guide us to his worthy people. This is the promise we see in the passage today. Uh, here, uh, I want to address two kinds of people. I want to address uh, the hurting believer today. And I want to address the unbeliever today. Uh, maybe you have sort of gone in a different way. You fled from God and his people long ago uh, because of a famine, if you will. Uh, church was going great until that pastor left and then all hell broke loose. Or uh, church was going great until you got too close to the pastor and then all hell broke loose. 
Or church was going great until that other member wronged or abused you in, in some way. And whatever the reason may be, you are thinking now it may be best to, you know what, just stay away from those barley fields. If you're hurting in this way, I want you to consider, might God be calling you out to the barley fields this morning? Even in spite of your hurt, even in spite of your fear, could he be saying, child, go. Go and glean among my fields. I have something very sweet for you in these fields. Uh, what would it look like for you to, to go, to, to fully give yourself to God and his people? Now, I want to be real. Could you spend tons of time and energy investing in others only to be hurt again? Yes, it's possible. Uh, could you put yourself out there only to go unnoticed and uncared for? Yes, that's possible. But what is also possible is that God may lead you to his worthy people, and through them he may show you a kind of favor that surpasses your greatest expectation, ultimately and foremost, in Christ. But church, if we go, go to the fields, and to the unbeliever, the, the, basically the outsider, somebody who would kind of be in Ruth's situation here, maybe you have a genuine sense of spiritual curiosity, and frankly, you're just not quite sure what to do with it. Uh, this church stuff, it's just not your thing. Uh, you don't have any experience in churches like this or small groups or Bible studies. You don't even know what to, where to turn when we say Ruth chapter 2. You don't know, Okay. And you, you, you wonder what everyone else in a church like this might be thinking of you. And I don't know, it doesn't seem like you're going to be assaulted here this morning, but you've heard a lot of crazy stuff about these churches. And all this apprehension has you really kind of second-guessing this whole people of God sort of thing. The whole gospel, the whole redemption concept even. What we want to say to you today is this. We get it but welcome. We are glad that you are here, and we're sure there's a long, complicated story that led you here. We can't wait to hear that. We want to say to you today, come to the fields with us. God will guide us together. He will guide us to his son, the culmination of this story. He will guide us to his redeemer, and along the way, we want to be here to make sure you eat and drink Church, especially if you are not a Christian, if you would not identify yourself today as a Christian, this passage is beckoning you. Take a step toward God and his people. Take a step. Come to our next membership class. We just had a great one yesterday. Uh, jump in a small group. Get to know some new friends there. Schedule coffee with, with Ron, as he mentioned, one of, another elder, any other member who you meet here today. Go. Go to the fields. And I have every confidence, we can have every confidence that this God will meet you in the fields and he will be very kind to you. But you have to admit, even back then, even for Ruth and Naomi, right, this was, this was scary stuff. It really was. Uh, Ruth could have easily been rejected. She could have even been assaulted, right? And so the anxiety we, we associate with this, the fear, it, it's real. It really is. Which is why next, it's not just enough for us to go. Next, number two, we also need to trust. 
And the promise in this passage that we can trust is this, that God will care for us through his people. Again, first and foremost, his son, Jesus Christ. And then through him, his body, the church. I want you to notice what should motivate and drive us to the fields with all this potential danger around us and this potential for more and more suffering. Here, what we can see is that the motivation is not that we can be sure everyone will accept us. That's not true. Ruth could have easily been rejected. Uh, the motivation is not that there's never any threat of being hurt whatsoever. No, that's not true. She actually could have easily been assaulted. So why then? Why can we so confidently say that it is a good and right thing to go to God and his people? It's because God, church, is present and active among his people. This is the point. And we've seen it over and over again throughout our preaching, even the last year. This is central even to the message of the gospel. That when we, can't, we don't know even what to make of these people here. We don't know how to deal with this. We can trust in the God of these people. It is our trust in Christ and in his redemption, frankly, that motivates us even to trust one another. We are going to see God often orchestrates his redemptive plans and purposes through this kind of a kindness. It's often through his people that he wants to care for us and meet us in our needs, even, even when he does bring us to faith and saving faith in Christ. When has that not been through the kindness of a brother or sister in Christ who's been able to share with you the good news of the gospel? This is how God's work, God works. And I want to encourage you, especially through the series we went through in Galatians, some of these themes were very prominent, the theme of God's family and this heavenly thing that he's creating. And since then, I, I've just heard from a number of you in specific language that's kind of like a refrain, how you've experienced the love of Christ through the love of this church. And so I just want to affirm and, and just even thank you guys for investing in one another and, and me and my family. In this way, it's evident to see God showing his care for us in that way. But maybe you feel outside of that today, looking in, and I want to ask if that's true today, do you trust God enough to actually let other people, hopefully the members of this church, care for you in, in the same way that Boaz does here for Ruth? Will we let others in, even to see the areas of our life that are in need of redemption? Uh, will we project a false or misleading image to hide that neediness? Will we let the light of our fellowship expose and identify sin in our life and then, and then humbly just confess it together? And then like Boaz, when this does happen and we see the need of one of God's people, will we stick with those people, walk with them, and commit to loving them through it all? And if not, if you're still a little skeptical here, could it be that our lack of trust in God's people is actually rooted in a lack of trust in God himself? As if he can't really be trusted to work through his people. Uh, when we are feeling apprehensive, when we'd rather not go out to the fields, when we feel uh, like God has been harsh with us, we're basically kind of limping back into church, what we do not need actually is more confidence and faith in the church, or, or in God's people. That's not the point here. But what we do need is a kind of trust in God that compels us to his people. With hope, with faith, 
and with a humble kind of patience, just waiting and watching like Ruth here to see God work, expecting that he will show us favor. Just going is not enough, showing up and being present. It's not enough. The question is, when we go, will we move towards God and his people with trust in our hearts, fully hoping, even expecting God to do redemptive things in our lives, or will we go begrudgingly with skeptical hearts, just kind of searching for all the threats and all the dangers out there as if, look, okay, we're here. We came back to Bethlehem, but we're empty, and we're not expecting that to change. Let's go. Let's trust. And finally, church, let's share. This is part of the hope. God sharing his redemption through his people. God can use us to show favor to others. <laughs> we need this perspective among us as well. In this story, Boaz is showing favor to Ruth because Ruth has shown favor to Naomi, and through it all, God is showing favor, yes, to Ruth and Naomi, but we're gonna see to all of his people even by the end of this book, and including us. God is showing favor to us in this interaction between Ruth and Boaz. The point is this, when we go searching for God's redemption among his people, it's never just about us. It's never just about us. It's always about much, much more than just us. And sometimes it is so much so about, uh, about more than us that it will shock and surprise us by the end of the story. The same is true for us today as Christians. When we experience the redeeming grace of Christ, it's never just about us. We, we need a vision for how God can use us to show this same kind of redemptive favor to others. Uh, there's a family at Grace Church, our sending church, that my wife and I were part of for eight years, that if you've been a part of Grace Church for a period of time, you know them. Uh, it's the Amundsen family. Uh, and, and Don is the, the father, the eldest father. He's in his mid to late 70s. Uh, he's the director of facilities at Grace Church. Uh, I worked on staff with him there. His son, Chris, actually is the youth pastor, and he discipled me even through high school, and then I was on staff with him. He's had a tremendous impact on my life. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, there's other siblings there, and they're just wonderful and have incredibly fruitful relationships in the life of the church. And I remember Don basically telling me the story one time of how he and his wife, Bonnie, showed up at Grace Church one day with their young kids in their mid to late 30s, and um, God just showed them the redemptive grace of the gospel at Grace Church in a way that they had never seen. They, they searched and found the gospel, and it changed their life at, at Grace Church. And I, I just can't help but think, I, I remember being at Chris's house and looking at a picture of his whole family and just being like, that's wild <laughs> that God brought Don and Bonnie together one day and then this, this happened. And, and as I think back to the story, I just can't help as a young pastor with a lot of families in their mid-30s who show up to our church, just thinking of Pastor Jerry at the time, the day Don and Bonnie showed up to Grace Church. And, and really, I'm sure he went home. He's like, oh yeah, I met a nice new couple, Don and Bonnie. And this man had no clue what God was gonna do through this family in the life of and ministry of Grace Church. I think this is part of the point of the book of Ruth. We are to be faithful. Uh, we are to go to the fields, not knowing exactly how God's gonna do this, but trusting that he can redeem us and through us share the favor of his redemption 
with others. I think about this in our decision uh, to potentially make a move, purchase a property in Brookfield in the sovereignty and providence of God. Uh, there may be some family, maybe even a few families, whose lives and trajectory of their family may be changed because of that decision. Not because our church is so great, but because God loves to show his people favor through his people. Praise God for that. Uh, newcomers regularly tell me this in the life of our church. Actually, uh, if you guys met Mark, Mark's got the big beard. He's the motorcycle guy. He came a couple weeks ago. His dad's here, and he said to me just before today, he says, man, I just want to encourage you. And I was already planning to say this without him saying this to me, but people say this all, to me all the time, just how warm and welcome these people. It's like you're being invited into something. Some people leave our church, actually, for this reason, because they're like, you know, it's kind of like I have to be a part of something if I come to Redemption Church. And we're like, yes, <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, come share in this with us, right? But over the years, I want us to ask God to fan this kind of favor sharing into a flame. I want you to consider, how can God use me to share the sweetness of his redemption with others? Now, who in your life really needs the sweetness of God's favor right now? In what ways could you kind of pull them in, take them under your wings, support them, and most importantly, what would it look like for you to actually share the gospel of God's ultimate kindness and redemption and attribute all the kindness that you show to this friend to the kindness and mercy that you've received in Christ? We love because he first loved us. Church, if you, uh, well, if you're here today and you're in search of redemption for the first time, you came looking for it and you haven't quite found it yet, we want you to know that God shows favor to his people. He redeems us by the kindness of his son, by his brutal death, his triumphant resurrection for your sins. We want to encourage you, run to Jesus, trust in Jesus, turn around and share the redemption that you find in him with others, but even for those of us who are wholeheartedly committed and believe in this redemptive power of Jesus, we don't quite know how that redemptive power will work itself out in the details of our life. And so in the meantime, this passage of Ruth is meant to show us how we live as we search for those answers. And what we're to do, church, is this. Let's keep going toward God and one another, confident he will guide us to his worthy people, most of all his son. Let's keep trusting that God will care for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and also his body, the church. And let's keep sharing the kindness and love of Christ with those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have inspired so long ago, the mystery, the majesty of what you're doing in the lives of Naomi and Ruth in the pages of Scripture. And we pray, God, that we would get even a faint glimpse of that kind of redemptive power in our own lives through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, the one whom your people have been moving and pointing us towards since the very beginning. And God, as we search for redemption, we do pray for the faith, the courage, the power of your spirit to keep us going, to keep us trusting, and to keep us sharing in the redemptive power of Christ. We pray that you would use this in our lives 
even this week in very tangible, practical ways. And we pray that you be glorified and honored all the more as a result of it. We pray, God, and thank you now for your faithfulness to redeem us, even in surprising ways. And as we get ready to praise you and thank you for that great faithfulness, we pray that you be preparing our hearts to experience it, even this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.